at the premiere of the movie Machine, which is a documentary-style film about artificial intelligence. One of the featured experts was Professor Toby Walsh. Professor Walsh is a leading researcher in artificial intelligence who has held research positions all over Europe and also in Australia, including the University of New South Wales. He was named by a newspaper as a rock star of Australian digital revolution. It was The Australian. He has been a leading advocate calling for a ban on autonomous weapons at the UN and elsewhere, and it was great pleasure he joins me on the line now. Professor Walsh, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Now, you wrote a couple of books. One of them is It's Alive, Artificial Intelligence, From the Logic Piano to Killer Robots. It's Alive is a reference, I believe, of course, to Frankenstein. <laughs> It is, and it's about whether deep philosophical questions, whether machines uh, might be as smart as us, and if they are as smart as us, might they also be conscious like we are? Conscious, because the monster in the novel Frankenstein is often portrayed for all its badness, yet it showed such a variety of emotions. It wanted companionship, perhaps even love, desire to reproduce, and it ultimately had contrition and a personal decision for the greater good. Yet, of course, in the middle there, it raged against what it thought was injustice. Is that the potential of artificial intelligence, the full gamut of emotions? It's an interesting and open question. We don't know whether machines... We can program you know, fake emotions into machines, whether they'll ever be the same as true emotions. Well, I mean, of course, on a purely scientific level, they won't. We know that our emotions have a chemical or biochemical component, a very large biochemical component, and, and um, digital computers are purely electronic devices, so they won't have that aspect of them. But if we program a machine with some empathy, with the uh, possibility to behave, pretend it's, it's happy or sad, is that going to be the same as if it really is happy or sad? Artificial intelligence is going to that point perhaps, or could go to that point, where its emotions aren't just a parameter. Let's do compassion 4.2 and anger 1.5 or something. It's that it may balance and, uh, and ruminate almost around those things. Do you see a difference between the machine learning and artificial intelligence? I do think we're going to program computers, we're already starting to program computers to understand our emotions. Um, that makes them more responsive. You know, I can tell you're getting rather frustrated by the, the service call today. Maybe I should escalate the priority which we're treating it. Um, and probably, and actually already starting to see, we will actually make them so that they're more interesting to interact with. They, they may have, we may give them fake emotions. Um, and so, you know, increasingly we will be spending more and more time talking to machines, interacting machines. They'll be learning more and more. They already know a lot about us. They'll be learning even more about us. Um, so there is the potential um, for for them to to engage with us at a, a more emotional level. Um, there aren't many AI movies that AI researchers like myself like. Most of them end in a very dark way. But there is one, and it's all about actually our our relationship with machines. It's the movie Her. It's about how uh, we, we very correctly that um, AI is the operating system of all our devices in the future, and we're going to be speaking and interacting with these these all our devices, um, and it's going to be quite an intimate relationship that we have with them because they'll know everything about us, and um, and um, so I think that movie gets that part really quite well.
One of the people in the movie had tragically lost a partner. He had been killed on the road, yet she fed all his emails and texts into a computer and it felt that it was giving back. But is that just reflecting where he was at that moment rather than necessarily intelligence that can take us to the next step, to to beyond just what a reproduction of what we've done in the past? Yeah, well, certainly what we can do today is, is just a, a reproduction of what's happened in the past. So the, the lady in question fed a chatbot with all his his messages and tweets, and it and it was able then to to converse in a very similar way. And uh, interesting enough, they've done a similar thing with Trump. There's a Trump boss that uh, tweets exactly like Trump, and indistinguishable, I think, from the real thing. Uh, that's no, not a very high bar to reach. <laughs> But the interesting question is whether machines might move on from that. And we and we come to challenging questions about whether they will actually be created in themselves, whether they actually have original thoughts or whether they'll be just parroting what we tell them. At the moment, they're largely just parroting what we tell them. But there is the possibility. I have colleagues who work on trying to make machines do more creative things, do things that they weren't ever programmed to do. And we, we do, you know, there's some wonderful examples. The movie also mentions about that wonderful game with Lisa Dole, uh, where one of the best Go players on the planet who was beaten um, by a computer program AlphaGo. And it made what experts considered to be a really creative move in the third game. It played uh, a stone on a position that humans never played. And 2,000 years of playing the game of Go, Go is one of the ancient, oldest strategy games on the planet. Humans would never play on the third row. Um, it was considered not to be a beginner's mistake, actually. And it turned out that this was the key move, that this was looking way, way ahead in the game. The humans so far ahead that humans couldn't look that far ahead and turned out now to be suggesting a, a new, interesting way that we should be playing the game that machines have discovered, that humans never discovered in all the 2,000 plus years that we've been playing the game. You mentioned a politician, I believe, the Turin test, isn't it, that can you tell by asking questions through a screen whether the answers are coming from a machine? Some people have postulated, can you tell that it's coming from a human? The famous Turing test, Alan Turing, who's in many respects the father of artificial intelligence and father of computing, and who, who helped to invent the computer during the Second World War in Bletchley Park, and he proposed this idea of, well, how will we know we've succeeded after each other? How will we know that machines are as smart as us, as capable as us? And he proposed this idea, a thought experiment more than actually a real experiment of, of actually sitting down in front of a screen and conversing. And if you couldn't tell whether it was a human at the other end or a computer at the other end, then you will perhaps be obliged to say that the computer was being intelligent, was artificial intelligence at that point. The point you mentioned there, of course, is there was an artist who had a computer painting. I was talking to him. Is the real issue then is that we might try and enter the notion of emotion, not just, as I say, a parameter, love will equal five, whereas anger equals four or whatever, but we might be able to enter art and literature for the computer to interpret what those emotions might look like? Yes. I mean, these are all interesting questions we don't really have the answers to yet. I, I, I do suspect, though, that 
that the art that machines make, the art like Pindar, the painter that you were talking about here, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the art that machines make will ever really speak to us the way that art speaks to us. It's made by other humans because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, a machine will never fall in love. It uh, is something probably only humans will ever do. It will never, it certainly will never die. It's not mortal like us. I have to think about all those <sighs> existential questions around life and death it will never lose a loved one because again it will never fall in love and it won't experience those things that are uniquely human about love and loss and life and death those are really human characteristics and um, it's highly unlikely the machines will ever really experience those and that's um, and if art speaks to those issues and those values then whilst we may on a surface level be able to get machines create paintings that look like the paintings of Rembrandt or Picasso or composed music in the style of Brahms or Beethoven, I'm not sure it will actually speak, us, speak to us across time like great art really does. We can't accurately predict the minutiae of the future, but I think your point is that we have to adapt and we have to try and instill values into the process we do have to ensure that the machines reflect our values because anyone who's programmed a computer knows how stubbornly literal they do exactly what we tell them to do. And so if they do the wrong thing, that is because we have told them to do the wrong thing at the end of the day. And it's, it, they're reflecting the values that we have programmed in them. And that's um, a reflection on us. And I think the other mistake to make is this idea that you could predict the future as though the future is already something that has been decided. Mm. And the movie ends with actually with with my word saying exactly this, but the future is actually the product of the decisions that you make today. It is actually, we still, you know, we do believe in free will and the, um, and the fact that we do get to make choices. And some of those choices are, for example, about how technology should or should not be used to enhance our lives or to detract from our lives. And I think we're already starting to see plentiful examples um, today of how uh, the not very smart machines that we have today are already starting to change our society and sometimes in good ways, making our lives more convenient, but equally sometimes in ways that are not so good, that are corroding our political discourse, changing the nature of truth and um, and increasing perhaps the inequality that we see growing within our society. So there are there are plentiful good things I think the technology is going to bring. And equally, we, I think we have to be careful to make sure that we try and um, save ourselves from the, the bad things the technology will bring into our lives if we're not careful. I think you mentioned the stock market as one where uh, it can run off the rails. Yes, if we want to see, we already have a, a snapshot of, of what the future looks like when machines get to take over many decisions um, and work perhaps sometimes in a rather competitive environment. And it's um, it's called the stock market. When we see, um, you know, for example, that there are flash crashes and we have to put circuit breakers in to, and sometimes um, you know, we have to unwind all the transactions that happen when we discover there were, there were unfortunate feedback loops in place uh, and everything went awry. So um, as we had more and more other decisions, not just about trading, but of, um, decisions, um, uh, machines that might make um, about our lives, or um, even as I talked about in the in at the Q and A at the movie about handing over decisions about about fighting war to machines. And we have to be aware of the risks of um, the machines behaving in unexpected ways when they interact together in these complex environments. 
You have spoken to the UN and other places about killer robots and the robotizing of weapons. Is that something where we can't stop AI overall, but we can at least try to stop it in areas that may be catastrophic? Yeah, this is something that does concern me greatly. And it does not just me, it's actually thousands of my other colleagues, other experts in artificial intelligence who have signed open letters to the United Nations calling for a, a, hopefully a preemptive ban on the use of fully autonomous weapons, weapons that actually decide themselves who lives and who dies. There are, there are some technologies we decided shouldn't be used for fighting war. They should be used for other good things, um, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, blinding lasers, cluster munitions. There's a, um, there's a whole raft of technologies we decided were actually distasteful and, and, and disruptive to our world if we actually allowed them to be used in for warfare. And so we've decided to regulate them. And I think um, this is another technology that we should seriously think about regulating. It's been called the third revolution in warfare. The first revolution was the invention of gunpowder by the Chinese that mm. was a step change in the way we fought war. The second revolution was the invention of nuclear bombs, which again was a step change in the way we could fight war and how we could destroy the planet in, in, a, in a matter of minutes. Um, and this has, I think, rightly been called potentially the third revolution. It would, it would allow us again to change the nature of war. It would hand over killing to machines which don't have our empathy, our compassion, and would also be very um, disruptive to the rather delicate geopolitical balance of power we have today. Because unlike nuclear weapons, these wouldn't be expensive. They wouldn't be difficult to get your hands on. They, they would allow you to scale warfare in a way that only other weapons of mass destruction allow you to scale warfare. You wouldn't need an army to do your evil. You would just need one programmer. I think the Chinese had gunpowder for a long time for fireworks and things before someone realised, uh, somewhat tragically, I suppose, that you could apply it to a gun. Yeah. Uh, it's a notion of uh, keeping vigilant at all times. It's also a good example of how the technology has good uses. I mean, all of us have been amused and entertained by fireworks uh, every New Year's Eve. And equally, um, other uses that um, have been less good um, as the basis for munitions and and explosives, um, and you know, something mm. of course that troubled Alfred Nobel, and um, at the end of his life to set up the Nobel Prize and the Nobel Peace Prize um, to undo some of the harm that, that it had done. Um, and that's the very, the very same true for artificial intelligence. There'll be plentiful good uses, even in the military setting. I say to people, there's plentiful things that the military should be using artificial intelligence for, like clearing a minefield, which is the absolutely perfect job for a robot. No one should ever risk a life or a limb ever again hmm. at clearing minefields. Uh, we should let robots do that. And if it goes wrong, the robot gets blown up and we're going to get another robot. It's not as if one poor example stops the principal chemical warfare has uh, been used recently, yet for a long time and perhaps into the future, it's not going to become rampant because of our principles. But you've raised the point, though, that the technology can then be adapted, not just by a rogue state, but necessarily by a, a, a fairly small group. Do you have to develop robotic weapons not to use in aggression, but to perhaps understand what the enemy might do? Oh, yes. I mean, there is still, uh, although we don't have chemical weapons and they are outlawed and largely not used, 
that hasn't stopped research into chemical weapons and defenses against chemical weapons. Uh, um, the United States, the United Kingdom and others are, are, are well known to have laboratories looking into this as a, as a way of not being caught off guard. And so I don't imagine that we won't um, explore the technologies. And actually, there are many, many, much of the technologies, the ability to identify and track targets are the things that actually are going to go into your autonomous car. They're going to identify pedestrians and track them. It's pretty much the same algorithm. So we're going to be developing these technologies. It's a question of whether we actually sanction arms companies to manufacture them and sell them. And if we don't want these to be widely available, we'd better make sure that arms companies aren't manufacturing them and selling them because then they will be widely available. They will turn up on the black markets of the world. They will become the Kalashnikovs of the future. So the technologies will exist. Um, and like chemical weapons, they will, I suspect, um, occasionally be misused, and we can't probably ever stop that. But if you look at what happens, I think you know chemical weapons are a good example. They're, they're not they're not expensive. Um, it doesn't actually require a huge amount of technical sophistication to build yourself chemical weapons. You just need some high school chemistry. You don't even need university chemistry, actually. We have nevertheless largely limited their use. They do get used very occasionally. They were unfortunately used in Syria not so long ago. 70 people died and very painful deaths. And that was um, to be regretted. But I suspect we would see much wider use if if uh, what happened then when they were used in Syria. I was actually at the United Nations that day. Um, and to see um, the outrage that was expressed from all sides, all countries around the world, the sanctions that were then imposed, um, it was the front page of newspapers, New York Times and newspapers around the world. And um, the world did sit up and condemn those actions. And there is always the threat of a distant court in The Hague for uh, those people who do order their use of these terrible um, technologies to kill people. And that's, I think, how we could hope to regulate autonomous weapons in the very same way that we regulate um, chemical weapons. And the technology will exist. It will be possible if if they so choose to use them. But... Um, for a, to a large extent, chemical weapons aren't used, they aren't widely distributed, they aren't sold by arms companies, um, and that, I think, has made the world a better uh, place for, for it. I think it is a good example. It's not perfect, but it's certainly a lot better than the alternative. We fear that artificial intelligence machines may tend to rule the world. Well, the way we're ruling the world at the moment <laughs> appears to be very primal, very fight or flight rather than reasoning. Yeah. Might artificial intelligence bring us back to a broader thinking world rather than an instinctive I'll fight you or abuse you type of approach, which seems to be most common in both politics and perhaps even in business? Well, they certainly are going to be a tool that help help us to actually make better decisions. I mean, humans are, there's plentiful evidence that humans are terrible at making rational decisions. We're full of the subconscious biases. And we're terrible at calculating probabilities. All things that machines could, if we're careful, be programmed um, to avoid. And so we do have the potential, if we choose to use the technology wisely, to actually have help us make better decisions in our lives from you know the day-to-day -day and very mundane to perhaps actually the quite important um you know international like decisions so it's all a matter of of taking the technology and and, and using it for good again not just putting in a parameter i wonder whether we might in the future be able to feed in all the series of the west wing 
where President Bartlett is the profoundly wise leader uh, rather than necessarily the instinctive one that we have at the moment. <laughs> it would be an interesting uh, thought experiment to run, yes. Uh, You've written a lot with the use of the word fairness. Yes. One of your papers is Group Envy Freeness and Group Pareto Efficiency and Fair Division, Fair Division yeah. with Indivisible Items. A- again, is that your attempt to try and bring values into this debate rather than just necessarily maximising profit or financial gain, growth in that regard? Yes, well, I think there's a a real lack of trust these days in in tech companies and the technology. And if we want to build systems that that increasingly take over decisions in our lives, we want to be able to trust them, want to trust them to, to act fairly. And there are plentiful examples of where we could try and get machines to be fairer, to allow us to do things. The, the world is, is full of scarce resources and, and competing demands from people. And so we have the potential. I mean, I, some of this work is with the um, Organ and Tissue Authority of Australia, looking at how we could more fairly and efficiently um, allocate donated kidneys to patients. There's um, unfortunately 2,000 people on the waiting list for a kidney here in Australia. Um, and how do we do that fairly and efficiently? And that's actually a very diff- difficult problem when you actually go in and look at it. I mean, you discover that there are many different aspects of fairness. There are people um, of different ages that you want to be fair to. Um, you know, there are people of different blood groups that you want to be fair to. There are people in different regions of Australia where the waiting lists are different lengths that you want to be fair to. There is a disproportionate number of people from the Aboriginal Indigenous community who have kidney disease waiting. So how can you be fair to these disadvantaged groups? And so you discover it's actually very hard to work out, well, what does it mean to be fair? There's so many different dimensions of fairness. And actually, you often trade one off against the other. And so what is the what is the appropriate point of trade-off that you want to accept? What is it the one that society thinks is the fairest way to, to deal with these kidneys? No matter how we then use it within a artificial intelligence, it's at least a very valid and interesting, profound and important aspect to review in our own mind as well. It is. It's interesting. I mean, I talk to the surgeons and, and the medical professions and I say to them, you know, why do you prefer me coming up with an algorithm for you to do this than to have, to have a human? And they whisper to me quietly, actually, that... An algorithm doesn't have any friends. <laughs> not sure that they trust each other. And algorithms are much more, ultimately, potentially, are potentially much more transparent than humans. Humans are, are, are famous for making up explanations post hoc as to why they made particular decisions and, and um, as I mentioned before, to have subconscious biases and so on. Whereas with an algorithm, we can, we can really audit exactly what happened. We can actually look at exactly why it made those decisions, what was the data it was based on, and check for ourselves that that was the fairest thing. And everyone in the room can then agree that was, that was the right person to have given this kidney to. The other issue of that is that you can report on what you put in there. Yes. That you can say, okay, this is the decision based on these factors. If you don't like the factors, you might choose to change them. Yes, yes. So, you, so we, we are also interested in trying how, how we can build mechanisms that are completely auditable, auditable that we can audit um, yes. uh, completely. 
That throws up, of course, some you know, fresh technical challenges. So how can we do that without compromising people's privacy? We don't necessarily want to actually uh, reveal people's personal private information, um, especially in a medical setting. Um, so how can we do that yet not compromise people's um, privacy? In transport planning, we often model what might be the movement of people based on logical perceptions of time, distance and cost. I once did some talk back where people said, no, no, I drive by the, the beach, that there are other factors involved there <laughs> other than yeah. the pure maximisation of a monetary approach. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, when, when you do these things, it's important to work out, well, what is really people's objective? And it may not be just saving minutes or, or, or dollars of fuel. It may actually be going the scenic route. It's important that business models come here, that we're not just talking about political will. I gave a paper in Singapore on, at a conference on business models. If you maximise your approach, you can do it for one of three things, to maximise profit, to maximise benefits to customers, or to maximise the community. And if you focus on one, you don't get the others. Yes. That's the issues we've really got to try and approach because if a government which is focused perhaps, say, on economic growth, they might be missing the point about community benefit. Yes. This really highlights why we actually need perhaps more regulation and we have to, if we allow the market to run wild, that we won't necessarily end up in the right place. I mean, I've, I've been... Um, doing some stuff with insurance companies. And they, 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 this problem becomes really stark. If you, As an insurance company, you might choose to maximize profit um, in terms of setting your insurance premiums. Well, that means actually you will charge certain disadvantaged groups hmm. um, more money for their insurance. And actually, as a society, we might decide that that's not fair. Uh, so, for example, a very good example is car insurance in Europe. Um, they've actually now regulated that you cannot charge any type of insurance, including car insurance. You can't charge insurance based upon the gender of the person. You have to charge the same amount to people irrespective of their gender. Well, the consequence, the interesting consequence of that is, well, there's plentiful evidence that men are worse drivers than women. They have more accidents. Hmm. And prior to this law, they used to charge men correspondingly greater insurance rates and women used to get cheaper insurance. Now, because of this law, they decide that you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender for any type of insurance, car insurance included. Now, um, they've actually had to increase the insurance rates for women. Um, and so women now are paying for men to be bad drivers. I worked in the insurance industry <laughs> for a while and uh, I wrote the policy uh, document for a major insurance uh, organization. And we struggled over that very issue that we would yes. not discriminate based on gender but we would based on statistical facts yeah and so so i'm not picking it because it's a woman i'm picking it because women have been shown on average to be less likely to have as many or as major accidents it's difficult and, and it comes down to economics would, would require you to charge women less and men more but as a society we have to work out well what what sort of society should we be penalizing people just because they've got an, an XY chromosome or should we, be, should we give everyone at least to begin with before they've actually had time to prove themselves an equal chance 
And those are choices that a society needs to make and actually have to be regulated into the market. We can't just let the market run wild because we'll end up with perhaps disadvantaged groups, whether they be gender or you know, people of handicap or people of color, whatever it is, um, will be charged disproportionately, which we actually might not find. And we come back to that word you introduced at the start, fair. From a community value point of view, that if there is a group, for example, that are a worse uh, insurance risk, that can be a consequence of the society. And so we are perpetuating those unfairness that that un- that unfairness that it's not necessarily their choice for doing it it's a consequence of the structure that we have at the moment yes and you end up with these unfortunate feedback loops so those people then can't afford insurance and then so they have catastrophic accidents and then hmm. they fall further into debt and and un- really unintended feedbacks that we don't want and those people become even more disadvantaged than they were at the start it's a big difference then between making a short-term decision and making a long-term decision as well. Yes, yes, you have to. We don't. The markets aren't very good at pricing things in the long term. They're very good at pricing things in the short term. Exactly. Um, but as we're discovering with climate change, the market's not very good at seeing the long-term consequences of our decisions. I uh, constantly try to push back and against that and say well look no matter what you think about the global local pollution is killing people and the solutions to that are in many ways ones that are solutions to the broader problem professor i've taken a lot of your time i appreciate can i just conclude are you optimistic (laughs) people always ask me this question i hope it's not considered a fudgy answer i'm optimistic in the long term but i'm pessimistic in the short term i think we're going through some very difficult times there are a whole host of wicked problems like climate change and increasing inequality and the disruption that technologies are bringing to our lives that mean that it is i think um, quite a challenging few decades in front of us but then when we get through that i think we will be in a place where our grandchildren live much better quality lives than we did is it one of the problems that we have almost an anti-science approach simply because it doesn't agree with our creeds. Yes, um, I, you know, I, I, it really causes me a lot of angst to hear that we've had too much, you know, heard too much from the experts and so on. And there's a, there is a turning away from from truth and science and, and those things that have actually given us much better quality lives over the last hundred years um, and are turning inward turning away of the of the progress that has lifted a billion people out of extreme poverty in the last um, two decades that has meant that life expectancy has increased by 50% even in the developed world. Also, the great value of science that is prepared to be wrong and to be adaptable. Yes, science is a fantastic system and it's completely self-correcting and that um, if ideas are incorrect, they will be that, that will be found out and they will be corrected and it doesn't matter. It's a, a wonderful self-correcting system with, with the feedback built in to do that. And, and um, that is why um, you know, we do live such better quality lives now. And um, I think given all of the challenges that face us now and the, unfortunately the failings of our political system, we do need to embrace you know, climate change is not going to be solved politically. Um, that, we had that opportunity 10 or 20 years ago to come up with political solutions. Now, actually, I'm afraid we're looking at technical fixes that we will have two or three degrees of temperature rise and we'll have to look at ways of engineering around that. 
Professor, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And that was Professor Toby Walsh, who is a leading researcher in artificial intelligence. He's held research positions all over the world, and we appreciate greatly the time that he's given us now.